Well, it's a joy to be with you uh, today. I was here last November just to, to visit and uh, had the opportunity to be here on a Friday and to be in the church. But it's a thrill to be back and to be able to share God's word uh, with you on this uh, missions emphasis uh, month and this particular few days. And it's always a joy to be with the Franks, um, knowing them since they were youngsters and just watching how God has, has grown them over the years and how he's blessed them with a wonderful family. We lo- I love their children. And it's always a blessing when they were in India to visit them there and now to be able to visit them here in uh, Abu Dhabi. Um, and I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 11. And just contemplating what you are seeking to accomplish this weekend with your missions uh, conference, I really thought it might be helpful for you as a congregation to, to see a model missionary church, which is the church at Antioch that we find recorded here, the history of it, the founding of it in Acts chapter 11. And uh, tomorrow evening, God willing, we'll look at uh, Acts chapter 13, uh, the first four verses, when this church actually sent out its first missionaries. Um, Let me read the text, and then let's pray. We'll begin reading in verse 19 of Acts chapter 11. The backdrop, by the way, to verse 19 of chapter 11 is Acts chapter 8, verses 1 to 4 where there was a great persecution that broke out upon the church. Uh, Saul was ravaging the church, and he was arresting people on a daily basis. Intense persecution. And so that's the backdrop to verse 19 of chapter 11, where we read, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, that's modern-day Lebanon, in Cyprus and Antioch speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenist, or the Greek-speaking peoples, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for 
your word that is uh, all-sufficient. It's authoritative for our lives, and uh, Lord, it, it gives to us everything we need for life and godliness. It's everything we need to fulfill the purpose for which you have formed your church. And we pray today that you would please, Holy Spirit, uh, enable us to understand these words, and not just to understand them, but as our brother prayed, that we would be changed, that we would be challenged and changed, that we would obey this word. And so we pray, Lord, you'd encourage us, particularly in this matter of the, the Great Commission. And so use this today, we pray. Holy Spirit, point us to Christ. May he be exalted in our midst, and may we indeed rejoice in Christ alone. And we ask these things in his name. Amen. Well, in the, the small groups that met this week, I shared from Psalm 67 about God's mission. And God's mission is for all the nations to be made glad through his saving power. That as the gospel goes forth and people are converted, uh, the peoples of the world are made, made glad. And that requires that his way be made known in all the earth among all the peoples. And when the gospel goes forth, the result of that is a, a world outreach celebration as the peoples who are converted praise the Lord and sing for joy. And that is to be our passion. Our passion is to be for the glory of God. Our passion is to be for God's name to be hallowed, for his kingdom to be extended, and for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. But the question confronting us, particularly this weekend, is how will this come to pass? By what means will God use for the nations to be glad? Now, we know that God is sovereign, and by his sovereign power, he saves people. It's by his power that churches are, are planted. But it's that last thing that I mentioned that is the instrument that God uses for the spread of the gospel and for the gladness of the nations. The local church is God's means for his mission. Christians corporately, as well as individually, are called to God's mission. The local church and local churches collectively are to, to, are to be instruments by which God will impact the world with and for the gospel. And the church at Antioch, for me, is the, the model church that did this. The church at Antioch was an incredible church. The church at Antioch survived for well over 200 years. The church at Antioch at one point grew to be one-fifth of the population of the city. They say that the city was a population of a half a million. That means 100,000 people were part of this church. Can you imagine uh, a fifth of this area becoming members of the church? This church was the first multicultural church in the Bible, and it's reflected in chapter 13 with a multicultural leadership. This church was known for faithfulness to expounding God's word. There was uh, many famous preachers there. One of those was by the name of Chrysostom, who was also known as the Golden Tongue. He was a, a wonderful proclaimer of the word of God. But for me, what makes this church the, the model church is that it was the first church in history to deliberately send out missionaries. 
The ones who founded this church, as we'll see, were, were scattered because of persecution. You remember that Jesus said in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 that the, the, the disciples were to be witnesses amongst all the, the peoples in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth. God had given a commandment to the church in Jerusalem to be his witnesses uh, abroad. But we see the church of Jerusalem huddling together in Jerusalem until persecution comes in chapter 8 and verse 1. Somebody has said that if we do not obey Acts 1-8, we might experience Acts 8-1, where the, the persecution comes and we are scattered abroad. Well, this church was, was formed, and as it grew and developed, it becomes, becomes the first church in the New Testament that deliberately lays hands on men and sends them out as missionaries. And so when I think about a church and a missions conference, I think there's no better place to be than in Acts chapter 11, looking at the DNA of this church that literally impacted the world. Because as Saul and Barnabas are sent out as missionaries, you remember that eventually the gospel goes into Europe. The gospel goes into Turkey, it goes into Asia Minor, it goes into to all the, the then known world, and really it's rooted here in the church at Antioch. This is a church that had an impact on the world. I would love for the church that I have pastored for 27 years to, to be a world-impacting church, a church that takes the gospel seriously to the point of sending out missionaries and impacting the world for the glory of God. I want our church to be a church that helps the nations to be glad as this gospel message goes forth. And so I oftentimes return to Acts chapter 11. I constantly am feeding on this chapter. And I want to share with you three major ingredients of a world-impacting church, three major ingredients of a local church that takes God's mission seriously. And the first thing is simply this, that a, a church that impacts the world, a local church that takes God's mission seriously, is well-founded on the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is founded on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we see this in verses 19 to 21. Again, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. So they go to the island of Cyprus, they go north to Lebanon, and they go as far north as Antioch in present-day Syria. That's about 500 kilometers from Jerusalem. These believers have been faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ in Jerusalem. They are being scattered. In fact, Acts 8 tells us that all the church was scattered except for the apostles. Now, it's, it's exaggerated language, but it's saying that the vast majority of the church was scattered. They were forced to leave their homes, forced to leave their families, many of them, forced to leave their source of income because of this intense persecution led by Saul. Everyone except for the apostles. That means that these are regular church members. And these regular church members are scattered, and some go as far as Antioch. But notice what they are doing. It says they are speaking the word. First of all, they're speaking the word, and many of them are speaking it to no one except the Jews. And so many of these Christians still don't get it. They, they don't quite understand Jesus' great commission 
that they're a disciple all the nations. So they're, they're speaking the word, and that's certainly implying that they are sharing the gospel, but primarily just to the Jews. In fact, that phrase, speaking the word, could be uh, translated gossiping the, the, go the word, gossiping the gospel. As they go forth, they're simply speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ. They're speaking the gospel. But look at the next phrase in verse 20. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenist. That's the Greek speakers. Those are Greek people. These are Gentiles. And they are also preaching the Lord Jesus. The word preaching, we get our word evangelism from that. They are telling forth the good news, literally, of the Lord Jesus. I want to pause here for a moment and help us understand what kind of people are going forth and preaching this gospel. This gospel, which, by the way, the Lord blesses as the witnessing, because verse 21 says, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So here we have the planting of the church in Antioch by those who are not apostles. These are regular church members who have been scattered. They go forth, and they are telling forth the gospel. Now imagine this. You're in Antioch. There's this influx of people from Jerusalem, and you meet them, and you ask them, oh, what are you doing here? And with great gladness and great joy, they smile, and they say, we've been run out of our homes. We've been persecuted. Let us tell you about the one that we're suffering for. They're going forth, and they are speaking the word. They are proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ they're not going forth complaining about their lot in life. They're going forth understanding they have a purpose, and that's to preach the Lord Jesus Christ. These people who founded this church, they understood the lordship of Jesus Christ because they understood the gospel. They understood that the, the good news of what God has done for believing sinners through his son. They understood the seriousness of their sin. One of the questions in the Q&A was about, uh, that Nissen was answering, was about um, the issue of, uh, uh, we need to be careful, we don't change the gospel. And Nissen made the point that uh, some people are saying that we need to avoid the word sin in some cultures because people don't understand what the word sin is, and they identify more with the idea of shame. And I just thought to myself, whether it's in the East or it's in the West, people don't understand sin. These people understood that they were sinners. The Spirit of God opened their eyes in Jerusalem. And that they were part of those who cried out in Acts 2, 37, what must we do? We're guilty. We cried, crucify him. What must we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of sins. The Spirit of God convicted their hearts. They realized they were sinners. They saw that Jesus Christ was not just a teacher. He wasn't just a rabbi. He wasn't just a good man. But they realized by the power of the Holy Spirit, he's God. He is Lord. And they repented and they believed upon him. And because they embraced him as Lord and Savior, they were willing to suffer for him. This church was founded by those who understood the cost of following the Lord Jesus Christ. But they also understood, and related to this, is they understood their purpose in life. They understood 
the Great Commission. You know, when Jesus said in Matthew 28, all power is given to me in heaven and earth, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them and teaching them. The emphasis of the Great Commission is making disciples. And how do you make disciples? You make disciples by preaching the gospel and then baptizing those who are saved and then teaching those who are saved. The emphasis is not on going. The assumption is you are going. What Jesus was saying in in, in Matthew 28 is this. As you are going through the world, Christian, you're to have one thing in your mind, and that is making disciples. I say to our church often, if if you're not going, then you're dead. Because we're all going through life. Some are going through life as married couples. Some are going through life as teenagers. Some are going through life in this job. And others are going through, jo- through work, uh, through life in that job. But as we're going through the world, we go through, we're supposed to go through the world with one thing in our mind, that is the mission of God. The making of disciples. These people who have lost their families, many of them, they've lost their jobs, they've lost relationships, they've lost their homes, That didn't deter them from understanding why God had saved them. He saved them to make disciples. And that's why when they're scattered and they go north, 500 kilometers from home, we find them speaking the word. We find them preaching the gospel. We find them evangelizing. We find them making disciples. Churches that impact their communities And churches that impact the world are those who understand their purpose. It's wonderful to have fellowship. It's wonderful for Christians to gather together, but why do we do that? We do that, we we gather together to encourage one another, to help one another grow in Christ. So as we go out into the world, we can carry on the work of the great commission of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. God scatters his people today in various ways. I mean, just looking around this room, God has scattered his people from numerous countries. And he's brought you to Abu Dhabi. But I can assure you this, that God's major purpose to bring you to Abu Dhabi was not to make money. Can I hear an amen? Amen. He certainly didn't send you to Abu Dhabi to enjoy cool weather. I can tell you that as well, okay? He didn't send you here to see the sights. He sent you here. He scattered you here. Some of you so you could get saved. And some of you that were already saved, he has scattered and brought you here for the Great Commission's sake. That's why God scatters his people. He may not have scattered you through persecution, but he's brought you here for the purpose of the Great Commission. That's how we need to view all of life, that everything that we are doing, we we do with this mindset of God's mission of making disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. These people go forth understanding the gospel, and they proclaim the gospel, and this church is formed by the gospel. It's formed by those who understood the gospel, who'd been saved by the gospel, who understood the lordship of Christ That's how this church was formed. And the result of them being faithful was that the hand of the Lord, I love this in verse 21, was with them 
And a great number who believed, they, they turned, literally they were converted to the Lord. And so the Lord uses here common, ordinary Christians. There's no apostles. I love that in, in Acts 8. That's significant. There's no apostles here. These are ordinary Christians, but they understood why God had saved them. They understood their purpose in life. And as they were faithful with the word of God, a church was planted. Our church was planted in 1972 by a, a couple um, who just, uh, in a new neighborhood, opened their home on Sundays to have a Sunday school for children. And the kids started coming, and then their parents started coming, and God began to save people. And this church was started. And, 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 and the man who, uh, the, the husband of the home, uh, he uh, was a businessman. He was an accountant. He wasn't a preacher. Uh, he's not gifted in that area. But he knew his purpose in life. And so he opened their home, and now, 47 years later, their Brackenhurst Baptist Church continues to proclaim the gospel. So this church was founded on the gospel. It was founded on the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But secondly, this church was also well-grounded the, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we see this in verse 22. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And they sent this brother Barnabas, who we know from Acts chapter 4. His name means son of encouragement. And here's what happens. The church of Jerusalem gets a report that something similar is happening a long way off that has happened here. Uh, we, 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 they get a report, because many of these people, of course, were from, these people were from that church in Jerusalem. And word trickles down that God is doing something up here. And so this church of Jerusalem, kind of the, the mother church, is, is concerned and wants to make sure what is happening there and is this a work of God. And so they send this man, Barnabas, to come to the church. And when he comes there, he, he sees the grace of God. Now, what does that mean, to see the grace of God? Well, I, I, here's what I think it means. When Barnabas arrives in Antioch, he looks around and he begins to see the same thing happening there that was happening back home in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 2, when the church was founded in Jerusalem, we read verses 42 to 47 that those who were converted were baptized. And as they were added to the church, they, they gave themselves continually to the apostles' teaching. And no doubt when Barnabas comes to Antioch, he sees these believers sitting around fellowshipping and, 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 and the new believers learning from the older believers from Jerusalem about Jesus. In Acts 2, it talks about that, that they were continually in fellowship and Barnabas begins to see that. In Acts chapter 2, they were continually breaking bread and he sees that happening. He sees fellowship. He sees them around the Lord's table. Acts chapter 2 also says that they were giving themselves continually to prayer, and so he sees people praying. And I think what it registered with Barnabas, this is the same work of God here than, that's going on back home. And he realizes this is the real deal. These people have been converted, and he's, he, he, he's glad about that, says in verse 23. But he also realizes that these believers need some encouragement and so it says in verse 23, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. 
I, one of my daughters, my second eldest daughter, is a, a long-distance runner, and she's a really good long-distance runner. And uh, she can run a pretty fast 10-kilometer. But the longer the race gets, the faster, the better she is. She can start off and run a certain pace and just keep it up, and the longer the race goes, the stronger she goes. So a marathon or a 50-kilometer or 56-kilometer race, I can, I can track her in those big races, and I can see that she's getting stronger the further that she goes. She starts well, but she finishes well. And I often think of that when I come to this passage because Barnabas seemed to understand, you guys have really started well. I can see the grace of God here. I can see that you have a wonderful foundation. But he's wise enough to know that just because they start well doesn't mean that they will continue well. And so what he does is, in accordance with his name, he exhorts them. He encourages them. And what does he encourage them to do? Well, to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Barnabas comes and basically what he's going to do is he's going to ground them further in the gospel. This was not just a once-off where he pulls the people together and just says you need to continue to serve the Lord. It seems like the verb tense is this is an ongoing thing. He's continually exhorting them to remain faithful to the Lord. That phrase with steadfast purpose, uh, I think this, this, this phrase speaks of the kind of the Latin phrase of Coram Deo. He's saying to them, live your lives always before the face of God. Be, be faithful to the Lord, steadfast purpose. You started well in the Christian life, and things are exciting, but things are going to get more difficult. We have a family, I was telling Gareth, uh, who was contacting me. They're from Cape Town, which is a long way from Johannesburg. It's about 1,300 kilometers, I guess. And this family is actually in the process of moving to Johannesburg because they want to join the Brackenhurst Baptist Church. And they've been, and they can't find in their area a church where they're really comfortable with, and they've been searching for churches, and they feel like they want to come to the Brackenhurst Baptist Church. And that, 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 that's, that's both um, encouraging and frightening. And I've tried to help them understand that, that you see some, some good things about Brackenhurst Baptist Church, and we're glad that you want to move here and be a part of what's happening here. But I also know this, that though they're going to start with great excitement, they're soon going to realize that Brackenhurst Baptist Church, this will shock you, it is filled with people who are sinners. And they're going to realize that it's not always easy being a part of the Brackenhurst Baptist Church. Now, I know your church is different, okay? I know this church doesn't have any problems. But the church of Antioch, Barnabas knew, would have problems. In fact, Barnabas comes from Jerusalem, and he's already seen God kill two church members in the church service, Acts chapter 5, because they lied. He was a part of the church in Acts chapter 6 when there was murmuring going on because some felt like they were being neglected uh, in the daily administration of material goods. And Barnabas comes there and he says, this is great and there's wonderful excitement, but you need to dig deep. And you need to be faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. You need to continue. You need to remain faithful. You need to persevere in your relationship with the Lord. 
churches that have an impact on their community and churches that have an impact uh, around the world through sending out missionaries are churches that start well, but they persevere through the tough times. They go through difficult times. I've been, I've been at my church for 27 years, and uh, at about my 24th, 25th year, faced some serious, serious challenges that were the most difficult thing I've ever faced in my life. And there were times I wondered if I'd even survive this. And there were times I wondered if the church would survive this. But we've come out of it the other end stronger. And I think, I think in a better position to spread the gospel uh, abroad. Churches go through difficult times, but it's when you persevere by looking to Christ. And how do you do that? You do that by being grounded in Christ by constantly being grounded in the gospel. When I, when I lived in Brisbane for a little while in the late 1980s, I know you're all thinking I must have been about 10 years old then, but um, when I was in the uh, in 1980s, I lived in Brisbane, and a friend of mine one day was saying to me, he said, I, I have a meeting with a pastor who's written some books, and do you want to come with me? And I said, sure. And so we went to this. He was a Church of England pastor, an Anglican um, pastor, and we went to this man's uh, office and his massive office lined with books. And as I talked to this man, I realized he was a genius, very bright man. And uh, we talked about his books and he wrote much about the gospel. And I said to this man, his name is Graham Goldsworthy, and I, and I said to him, I didn't know him back then. I've read all of his books since then. And, and I said to him, when, I said, um, I have a question. I said, you know, you're obviously, you know, a lot of theology. So when you preach to different places, what kind of themes do you preach on? And I'll never forget this. He looked at me, and this was a long time ago. He looked at me and he said, young man, he said, I preach the gospel. And I said to him, well, I know that. I said, do you mean by that that you, that you preach evangelistically? And he said, well, I hope it's evangelistic. He said, but even if everybody's a Christian, I preach the gospel. And then he took me to Romans 1 in the first five verses where he showed me very clearly where Paul said about the gospel that the gospel is concerning God's son. And he said, young man, he said, you never outgrow the gospel. He said, because the gospel always brings us back to Christ. Tim Keller has said it very well that the gospel is not the ABCs of the Christian life. It's the A to Z of the Christian life. It's all of the Christian life. And I would imagine as Barnabas is meeting here with the church and exhorting them to be faithful to the Lord, he just keeps repeating the gospel truths. He keeps reminding them of God and man's condition and of Christ and of our response to him. He grounds them further in the gospel. In other words, there's discipleship. One of the biggest lacks today in churches is the matter of discipleship. Uh, we, we have five daughters, and I can remember every time that our, our daughter was born, we'd go to the hospital, and my wife would give birth, and then when we, when we would leave the hospital, guess what we did? We took, her home, they took the baby home with us. We didn't say, well, that was fun. Let's try that again and leave the baby. No. The truth is, conception is, is normally easier and more enjoyable than actually raising the children. Now, now, don't misunderstand me. We love our children. But it's hard work. It's hard work raising children. I've heard some babies here today. It's hard work. But that's the discipleship work. 
that's helping them to develop. When it comes to the local church, evangelism is sometimes more enjoyable and sometimes easier than the work of getting down into someone's life and helping them to grow in Christ. Barnabas did this. And it's interesting as he grounds the church and the, the church grows deeper in its walk with the Lord, we read in verse 24, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So this church is well-founded on the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's then well-grounded. It becomes more firm in the gospel. It becomes more firm in Christ. Christ becomes more conformed in them. And as they grow deeper in the relationship with the Lord, the church becomes broader. More people are added to the Lord. This church begins to grow. So what does Barnabas do in verse 25? Well, he realizes this church is growing and it's beyond my capability. I need help. So he goes to Tarsus to look for Saul. I wish I had a lot more time to deal with this, but you told me only an hour and a half, right? Okay. Relax, okay. I have a watch, okay. Means nothing, but I have a watch, okay. But... Think about, think about this. Of all the people for Barnabas to go and get, he gets Saul. Humanly speaking, the reason this church in Antioch is in existence is because of Saul. Because in Acts chapter 8, it's Saul who's ravaging the church. It's Saul. Saul is the human reason these people have been scattered. He's the human reason they've lost everything and had to go away to another city. But Barnabas obviously realizes, I know what's happened since then, because in Acts 9, God saves Saul. And in Acts 9, when Saul tries to join the church, remember the people at the church in Jerusalem, they're freaking out. They're saying, wait a minute, our experience with this guy has not been very pleasant. And Barnabas, as it were, this son of encouragement, puts his arm around him and says, he's okay, he's one of us. But remember when God saved Saul, God said to Saul, you're my chosen vessel to the Gentiles. Well, what kind of a church is this that's been started? It's a multicultural church. It's predominantly Gentiles. And so Barnabas realizes, I need to go find him. And the text indicates the original wording that he hunts for, for Saul. He goes to Tarsus. Tarsus is hometown, and there's a lot to think about there, but he gets Saul, and he comes back, and the Bible says this, that for a whole year, they met with the church, and they taught a great many people. Again, do you see this? They're grounding them further. They're discipling them. They're, they're ministering to these believers. They're helping them to grow deep so they can go broad. I was running yesterday somewhere in Abu Dhabi and I noticed this massive pit where these guys were excavating and it just dawned on me how deep they were going because obviously they're going to build a tall building. You go deep in order to go high. And so these believers were being grounded and Paul and or Saul and Barnabas are, are working, grounding them further. And it's interesting, it says in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. It's a rare word in the New Testament. You only find it three times here, Acts 26 and 1 Peter 4. This is probably the, they weren't calling themselves Christians, but those around them were saying, you look like a little Christ. It was probably a negative word, but what a great compliment. 
You're like little Christ. These disciples have been so grounded in the gospel of Christ. They are being faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. They begin to look like Christ. And now that brings us to the third and final agreement, uh, ingredient of this church. Not only was it well-founded on the gospel and well-founded in Christ and well-grounded in him and well-grounded in the gospel, it was a church that became well-tested. You might even say this, it became, well, uh, 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 it became a good model for us. We see this in verses 27 to 30. It says, now in these days, what days? The days of this church that's being planted, that's, being, uh, that's growing deep in its relation with the Lord. Now in these days, prophets come from Jerusalem to Antioch. And here's their message. The, the, it's, it's, it's not a prosperity message, all right? It's a message of suffering, more suffering. Agabus, one of the prophets, stands up and says, there's going to be a great famine, literally a mega destitution. There's going to be a great famine over all the world. Over all the world. Well, simple question, is Antioch in the world? Yes. And so these believers in Antioch are hearing a message that there's going to be a great famine here. We're going to be suffering. Now, if, if I was there in those days, and I had heard that there's going to be a great famine, I must admit, probably because of my selfish tendency, I might immediately think I am running to the grocery store. And I'm going to stock up on food because there's going to be this great famine. But it's marvelous how this church responded. It says in verse 29, so the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. Let that sink in. These people here, there's going to be suffering back in 1993 or 1994 and just before the elections in South Africa, after Nelson Mandela had been released from prison, there was lots of turmoil in the country. There was lots of talk about civil war. And they were talking about blowing up power stations and all this stuff. And so I remember my wife and I, we actually went to the grocery store. And we stocked up on canned goods. We're still eating those canned goods. So. <laughs> we, went, we went and bought a little gas stove. And I must be honest with you, and this just reveals my selfish heart, I didn't think about my neighbor. I thought about my own family. And you might say, well, in one sense, that's right. But isn't this interesting here? They're not thinking about themselves. They're thinking about people 500 kilometers away. They're thinking about suffering Christians in Judea. Yeah, they're going to suffer in Antioch, but their first thought is not taking care of their own needs. Their first thought is taking care of the needs of others. You know why? Because they've been grounded in Christ They've been grounded in the gospel, and these disciples are living like what? Christians. They're living like little Christ. And Jesus Christ didn't think of his own needs. He thought of the needs of a sinful world who needed a Savior. Jesus Christ, who was God, Philippians tells us, he did not consider being equal with God something to be grasped and held on to. 
But what did he do? He became a servant. He became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Christians are known, or Christ is known because of his sacrifice. And those who are saved by him, our lives should be sacrificial to meet the needs of others. These people were sensitive to this prophetic message. They heard it and they believed it. But they weren't just sensitive to the message. They were sensitive also to the misery of others. And, and they realized that there are Christians back in Jerusalem and Judea where they had come from that were worse off. They were already having a hard time. And now the famine on top of that, they determined not to take care of their own selves, but to meet the needs of others. And because of that, they were sacrificial with their material goods. They were willing to meet the needs of others. When you think about it, that's exactly what missions is all about. As Christians, we ought to be sensitive to the, the message of the gospel and the message of our master who says, go and make disciple of all the nations. As Nissen said, we should be sensitive to the eternal misery of those who do not believe on Jesus Christ. And the judgment and the wrath of God should drive us to share the gospel with them. And because of that, we should be willing to sacrifice our money, sacrifice what we have in order to get the gospel to them. When it comes to supporting missionaries, we need to be thinking of, of those who are serving the Lord, who are in need. We need to give deep in order to help them in their ministry of spreading this gospel. They didn't just determine to do it, but they actually did it. You know, New Year's comes around and everybody goes on a diet, right? Um... New Year's, the first day of the year, we know it's in our neighborhood, everybody's out jogging. But about a month later, the neighborhood is empty again. Because we determined to do something, but we don't follow through. These people determined to do it, and they sent it by these brothers, Saul and Barnabas. Let me wrap this up. It's a wonderful thing that this church would send their money. But this church is, is going to continue to be faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. To the point, as we'll see tomorrow night in Acts 13, not only did they send their money, but they also sent their members. And that, in many ways, was a deeper sacrifice. Can you imagine having brothers like Barnabas and Saul leading your church and then one day the Spirit of God says, I want them to leave. And you're going to want to hang on to them. This church doesn't do that. This church lays their hand on them and sends them away. You know why? Because it was founded on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because it was continually grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was well-tested about their loyalty to Jesus Christ, and they trusted him enough to send not only their money, but their members. You know, it's a joy. We've sent several families over the years uh, away as missionaries, and it's, it's difficult. But I look back over the years, and just being in India last week again, and seeing the fruit of the labor of the Franks, and what a joy that is. And you ought to be praying as a church Lord, please use us as New Life Church, not just to send our money, as important that is, 
But God, please raise up members from this church that we can send out with the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. The churches can be founded on the gospel, grounded in the gospel, and tested by the gospel, and to model that gospel well to the glory of God, to the gladness of the nations. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for ECC that planted New Life Church. Thank you for a church that was founded on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you for a church that's continually being grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And a church that is and will be tested to prove that commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ. May this church be a wonderful church that continues to make disciples at home. And as you providentially, Lord, send the gospel from here through, through its members, help the church not to be tempted to selfishly hang on to those that you want to send abroad with the word. And use this church, please, Lord, in your mission to make the, make the nations glad through your glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.